Warner Solicitors provide advice on a range of legal matters to individuals, families and businesses. The leading legal directories regularly recognise Warners as offering some of the best legal advice in the region. This series of podcasts will give you an insight into some of the legal issues that may affect you and your family. Thank you for your company for this Warner's Solicitors podcast. Today I'm with Keith Unger from Warner's Solicitors. A warm welcome, Keith. Hi, Paul. Nice to be with you. Keith, could you introduce yourself and your role with Warner's Solicitors? I am a partner in the family law department, having recently been made up to partner from senior associate. My speciality is, is general family advice across the board. Let's get the ball rolling here. The topic we're discussing today is the process of divorce and what is involved. Now, what is actually involved in getting divorced and how long does it take? Well, a divorce culminates in the legal ending of a marriage. There are a number of prerequisites that one needs to go through in order to get divorced. The first is that you should have had a valid marriage ceremony, and that must have taken place at least one year beforehand. The court must also have jurisdiction. The marriage must have irretrievably broken down. And to support that, you've got to demonstrate at least one of five facts. Those are adultery unreasonable behaviour, desertion, two-year separation with the consent of the respondent, or five-year separation. So at the moment, online, it can take around 16 weeks, but can take much longer in the relatively rare event of it being defended, or if the final stage, that's decree absolute, is delayed for another reason, commonly because finances have not yet been determined. So what does it mean if a divorce is uncontested? It means that the other person, that's the respondent, does not intend to defend or contest the case, or perhaps has not responded, and the court allows the case to proceed notwithstanding that. And what can I do if my ex won't agree to a divorce? Well, it really depends on how that lack of agreement is conveyed. If it's just a case of the respondent not having responded, then depending on the fact of the divorce, a further application may be made to the court the outcome of which may allow the case to proceed, notwithstanding the lack of a response. Otherwise, if the respondent suggests that they intend to defend in due course, the court will need to give directions as to how the case should proceed at a case management hearing. If a compromise cannot be agreed, then the case will go to a final hearing, which you may know as a trial, and that's where the parties and any witnesses are called to give oral evidence and are subject to cross-examination. It's a very expensive process. And what is a decree nisi? This is the first divorce order. It doesn't actually dissolve the marriage, but confirms that the petitioner has satisfied the court that the marriage has irretrievably broken down and is entitled to dissolve the marriage. And how different is that to a decree absolute? The decree absolute is the final order and that dissolves the marriage legally. The parties are then free to remarry. Generally, the earliest you can get that is about six weeks from the date of decree nisi. And can you describe the grounds for divorce? There's only one ground and that's the irretrievable breakdown of the marriage. One or more of five facts are used to support that, as I mentioned earlier. They are adultery, unreasonable behaviour, desertion, two years separation with the consent of the other party or five years separation. And can you 
tell us about a no-fault divorce. So this is a new law. It received royal assent in 2020. And what it does is amend the current divorce legislation. In theory, the divorce application will simply now state that the marriage has broken down irretrievably. No longer is there a need to try to explain any of the facts I mentioned. Originally, it was planned to be implemented in 2021, but it's now been pushed back to the spring of next year. Until then, the old regime remains in place. In terms of how we sort out the child arrangements, Keith, we have a podcast in place with Matthew Abes, who's the head of the family team here at Warners. So let's move on to the next point I I want to ask you about. Does the same process apply if we were married abroad? This doesn't necessarily impact on the question of recognition of a foreign marriage. That's not an easy one. This too could be a separate podcast, actually. In principle, the process is the same. There could also be a financial case in this jurisdiction after an overseas divorce. Okay, so here's a scenario. I was married in England, but now live abroad. Can I get divorced in England and Wales? It's possible. This gets into considerations of jurisdiction. It could be conditional on where the other spouse was living and may also be dependent on something called domicile. That is, to quote part of a 19th century judgment, where a person has voluntarily fixed the habitation of himself and his family not for mere special and temporary purpose, but with a present intention of making it his permanent home. A person can have a different domicile at different times during their life. So, like the answer to many things, it depends. (laughs) And how much does divorce cost? That varies. It would depend on how much work was undertaken and whether it was defended, and if so, whether those proceedings went to a final hearing or compromised earlier. For a straightforward, undefended divorce, as most are, the fees are likely to be in the region of £750 plus VAT plus the court fees if you're the person that's bringing the case. If you're the respondent, that's the recipient of the application, then there are no court fees and because there is less paperwork, the likely costs are going to be somewhere in the region of three to £400. Now, a common question, I'm sure, can I get a fixed fee divorce? Yes, you can. There are many solicitors and legal companies who offer fixed fees. These are mostly, if not entirely, for uncontested cases. We offer that service for £1,500 fully inclusive of VAT and court fees. And who pays the legal fees in a divorce? In the first instance, the petitioner. That's the person making the application. Good practice suggests that a cost order against your spouse should not routinely be sought. In reality, cost orders are more common in divorces based on facts such as adultery and unreasonable behaviour. And what about the divorce financial arrangements? Well, generally, the starting point is that each party will meet their own costs unless they agree otherwise. That said, the court retains a discretion to make an order requiring the other party to pay the costs. This can be because of their conduct during or before the proceedings. The court can also make a legal services payment order once proceedings have started. This would require one of the parties to pay the other an amount to enable them to obtain legal services. And can I sort out the financial arrangements without a divorce? Yes, you can. You would, at the very least, be well advised to record your agreement in the form of a deed. If that deed is fair, and the parties would again be well advised to observe certain formalities... 
then the deed is likely to be upheld in the event of a dispute as to whether it's binding or not. And does the reason for the divorce affect how the financial settlement is worked out? This is referred to as conduct. It's one of the statutory factors the court should apply its mind to when determining a case. The court must be convinced that it would be inequitable to disregard that conduct when making its decision. Personal misconduct often cited in an unreasonable behaviour petition would only very rarely fall within this category. A party's financial misconduct, such as fraud, may be relevant and so allow those lost funds to be notionally added back to the pot, as it were, and so available for distribution. A party's litigation misconduct may be considered relevant when the court comes to consider whether to exercise its discretion and make a costs order. And at what stage in our divorce do we need to agree a financial settlement? An agreement can be made at any stage, either before or during the process. The court can make the order after decree nisi. Often, decree absolute will be delayed until the financial order is made by the court. And will any payments I make to my spouse while we are separated affect the final divorce settlement? It is possible, but it's very case-specific. And what effect will it have if I move out of the family home before we're divorced? This is a common question. People often worry that by leaving the family home they are abandoning their claim. But that's not the case. They should note that by simply moving out they're not relieved of their obligation to meet certain liabilities, for example payment on a mortgage. And are there any precautions I should take during divorce, for example, to stop my spouse taking cash from our joint account? Well, what you can do, you can ask the bank to make that account a joint signatory account, meaning that for any further withdrawals, both of you would need to agree. It could be a temporary measure to prevent significant money from being withdrawn by one and resulting in you both potentially having a liability should the, should the account go into overdraft. And how much maintenance is a former spouse entitled to? This is a thorny perennial problem. It's very case-specific. Okay, so is our divorce settlement affected if one of us remarries or, or starts cohabiting with a new partner? In general, the divorce settlement should be unaffected. You need to be careful, though, of timing. One of the questions in the disclosure form is called a Form E asks whether you are living with a new partner or intend to within the next six months. A similar question appears in a document ancillary to an order submitted to the court by consent. Now, if those questions are answered inaccurately, then it may be seen as fraud and there's a risk of the whole order subsequently unravelling. There could then be a very heavy legal cost burden for the person making that misrepresentation. And once, when we're divorced, can I settle any financial claims? That's the aim. It is the court's duty to consider terminating the financial obligations between the parties as soon after the divorce as the court considers it just and reasonable. That's the phrase. It's called a clean break. And can we negotiate a divorce settlement without using lawyers or, or going to court? It's possible, of course, but there are pitfalls for the unwary. And so parties need to be very careful and, and I'd suggest very well researched. Most may find the investment in a timely consultation with a lawyer a reassuring process. And can business, overseas, trust assets be included in a divorce settlement? Absolutely. Yes, they can. It's probably a good topic for a standalone podcast because it's so vast, but on the face of it, they are all potentially relevant to a settlement. And a big question, what happens to my pension? 
It's another area with significant pitfalls. Again, it's potentially relevant. Pensions can be shared, that is physically split, so that the parties have their own pension provision that may have originated from the other. More rarely, they can be the subject of what's called a pension attachment order. Here, the court directs the pension trustees to divert a portion of one of the party's pensions to the other once it's due to be paid. Another possibility is that the pension could be offset. Here, a party may retain more of their pension in exchange for the other receiving a greater share of additional capital, for example, the marital home. And can money one of us expects to inherit be taken into account when we divorce? Well, it depends, again. Inheritance is a species of, of non-matrimonial property. Now, what's that? That's money or property made outside of the partnership and not created by the efforts of the other. Subject to questions of the needs of the parties, the party receiving the inheritance is much more likely to retain it. It also depends on things such as the length of the marriage and whether the inheritance has been mixed with other assets, for example, invested in improving the family home. And will a prenuptial agreement protect my assets if we get divorced? I mentioned agreements earlier. If it's fair and the parties need to think about certain formalities, such as disclosing their financial position, then the deed is likely to be upheld. And what can I do if I find out my spouse has assets or income not disclosed when we agreed the divorce settlement? So I touched on this earlier. If there's a fraud, then there's a strong presumption that the court will set aside the settlement. It's down then to the alleged fraudster to show that that fraud would not have influenced a reasonable person. If the court does set aside the settlement, then there's likely to be a significant order for costs made against the fraudster. If the non-disclosure is more innocent in nature and would not have made a significant difference, and that will of course vary from case to case, then the court is more likely to be more forgiving. However, the best policy is always to know your own financial position well enough to make full disclosure and just take that risk out of the equation. So once divorced, should I make a new will? I think the best advice you can have there is don't wait. Keep your testamentary intentions under review at all times. People often think that they will wait until the end of a case before reviewing those intentions. I think it's better to review the position on separation and make changes then. Were they to pass away during the course of the divorce, most people would want to have a say in where their money went. If they've not changed their will and made other changes as to how they hold jointly owned property, then they will have lost that option with potentially disastrous consequences. A lot of information here, Keith. We've been talking about the process of divorce and what is involved. If people want to make further contact with you, how can they do that? Oh, please feel free. In the first instance, I'd suggest they email me at k.unger at warners.law. I've been talking with Keith Unger on this podcast. Keith is a partner and family law solicitor with Warner's Solicitors, and this is one of a series of podcasts that we're producing with Warner's, focusing on family law issues. Thank you for listening to this Warner Solicitors podcast. To find out more about our expert legal teams and the advice and services they deliver for both individuals and businesses, please go to warners-solicitors.co.uk.